It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, it turns out that your personal image is pretty, pretty important when it comes to putting on a successful television show. Ellen DeGeneres is the latest, most dramatic example. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Buzz Meter. Glad you're along. Uh, you know, you recall last summer and early fall, there was just this incredible spate of stories about how Ellen was a horrible boss and there was a toxic work culture at the show and there was a, an investigation. And then she came on the air in the season opener and apologized. She said those things should never have happened. Uh, I take it very seriously. And then her numbers have plummeted. Ellen has lost more than a million viewers since September. The Nielsen numbers are 2.6 million last year, and in the last six months uh, now, one and a half million viewers. Uh, now, the whole business of toxic workplaces, you see this uh, with CBS's The Talk, which remains on hiatus, the whole Sharon Osbourne controversy, is you know getting a lot of attention. But I would have thought, look, Ellen, you know, everybody knows Ellen, everybody loves Ellen. All these stories will eventually fade. She'll come back on the air for the new season. Everything will be fine. But when you compare it uh, to some of these other shows, um, for example, um, even though Ellen has won dozens of Emmys, uh, Dr. Phil has over 3 million viewers, uh, live with Kelly and Ryan, 2.7 million viewers. And Ellen is down now in the Maury Povich area. He's got 1.4, Kelly Clarkson, 1.3 million, Rachel Ray, 1.2 million. Um, and so it's been a very tough season. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, her audience is largely women. And if they feel like, well, she's actually not the nice person that she portrays on TV. And I've never met Ellen, so I don't know whether that's true or not, um, you can pay a real price. Meanwhile, there is a hell of a sex scandal going on in Australia. And I guess I should issue kind of like a consumer warning here. This is a little bit R-rated. But reading from Yahoo News, uh, there have been some leaked videos. Uh, have, this has to do with staff members in Australia's conservative administration. The leaked videos show them performing sex acts in Parliament, including one man masturbating over a female MP's desk. And that has left uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison's administration facing another major scandal. Prime Minister had already been under attack for his handling of sexual assault allegations uh, before this. That included a f uh, allegations that a female government advisor was raped by a colleague. So Morrison is calling this latest uh, behavior and the videos disgraceful, absolutely shameful. Uh, they were shared in a group chat uh, before being leaked by a whistleblower. They were revealed by the Australian newspaper and Australia's Channel 10. Uh, these graphic images have prompted fresh outrage from female lawmakers and the Australian public. Uh, this whistleblower, who's identified only as Tom, told these two news outlets um, that government staffers and members of parliament often used a parliament house prayer room. This is, you can't make this stuff up, folks, to have sex. And this guy alleged that sex workers have been brought into the building for the pleasure of coalition MPs. In other words, the ruling coalition. He also said a group of staffers routinely swapped explicit photos of themselves. And he had received so many, he'd become immune to it. It was a culture of men thinking they can do whatever they want. Uh, this is morally bankrupt, this guy says. Uh, one aide has been fired so far. The Minister for Women uh, says this is beyond disappointing. 
and highlighted the need for a government inquiry. Wow, this is a pretty depressing and awful stuff. And I can see where women in government, where just women in the Australian population just be outraged by this. So Jeopardy, as you know, is having a bunch of uh, rotating guest hosts uh, buying some time, and I guess you could say they're tryouts, uh, in the wake of Alex Trebek's death and trying to pick a permanent new host. Well, the guy who's doing it now is Dr. Oz, uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz, and he is getting just absolutely creamed on social media, uh, many calling him dangerous, and a guy who shills, uh, who basically peddles medical misinformation for profit, uh, this according to the Huffington Post. Uh, and look, Dr. Oz has been controversial for a long time, you know, used to do the Oprah show uh, because in addition to peddling what the Huffington Post describes as scammy weight loss products and providing a platform to debate the coverage uh, benefits, excuse me, of conversion therapy, uh, back in 2014, a British medical journal study declared half of his medical advice to be baseless or wrong. So he's a controversial guy, but a popular TV personality. Uh, President Trump, you may recall, uh, appointed him to the Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition a couple of years ago. And he then suggested that schools should reopen during the height of the pandemic because only 2 to 3% more people could die from that. He later said that was misconstrued. Anyway, Oz's selection as a Jeopardy guest host is part of a you know, rotation, as I said. Uh, but uh, let's just say he's not getting rave reviews, at least given his personal history. All right, I want to move on now to a question about Donald Trump and the media. And it's not just that I like to talk about Donald Trump because, you know, more people listen to the podcast or writing columns and so forth. But, you know, I did uh, kick off this uh, debate uh, with uh, the Media Buzz interview segment with his senior advisor, Jason Miller, on Sunday, I talked about this on yesterday's podcast, the, the former president, uh, Miller says at least the former president is going to come back on social media in two or three months. By the way, he did an interview with Newsmax uh, last night, and, and Trump said, and I reported this exclusively a couple of months earlier, that he was enjoying not being on Twitter. He, he thinks the statements that he puts out are more elegant than just a bunch of tweets and he said, and this was a huge criticism of the foreign president at the time, Trump uh, told Newsmax's Greg Kelly that, um, you know, he would retreat things. And then if the person he was retreating turned out to be a controversial figure or not uh, very trustworthy, then he would take the hit for that. And people complain about that all the time. Well, take an extra, you know, 60 seconds to look into it. Um, but I think he he's now saying publicly, you know, that uh, there's a upside to not tweeting regularly and that, and that Twitter is not necessarily the greatest fit for him. At the same time, he wants to come back with his old social media platform. Some people saying this is unrealistic or it'll be boring. I say, you know, hey, good luck with that starting from scratch. But look, Trump gets on some social media platform. Maybe it's an app. Maybe it's a, a website. Um, a lot of conservatives will follow him there. Some liberals will follow him there just to find out what Trump is doing. Lots of journalists will be forced to follow him there. So I wouldn't be so quick to say it will be a spectacular failure. Let's just see what he comes up with if indeed he does go down that road. But the Washington Post has a story today about sinking and shrinking audience numbers uh, in the wake of Trump's departure from the White House. Now, he used to do this all the time. He's, oh, the failing New York Times will go under when I leave. Well, that hasn't quite happened. Uh, but in 2017, he said newspaper, television, all forms of media will tank. 
if I'm not there. And the Post now is kind of being forced to say, yeah, this is kind of happening. So the Washington Post, according to the Post story by Paul Fari, saw the number of unique visitors fall 26% just from January to February and 7% from a year ago. New York Times lost 17% compared to January, 16% compared to last February, a year ago. Um, and if you look at cable news, and by, so what happened in January, you had Trump leave office, then you had the second impeachment trial, and now you have, you know, the Biden era. Uh, among cable news networks, the most deeply affected network, says the Post, is CNN. CNN had actually surged past Fox and MSNBC briefly in January, but the network has lost 45% of its primetime audience in just the past five weeks, according to Nielsen. Why? Because Trump's not there to kick around. MSNBC's audience in the same period has dropped 26%. Now, Fox News, which generated a lot of headlines because it had a big uh, dip, uh, as many people who watch Fox were not happy with the election results, the results that Trump continues to say without evidence, wasn't able to convince any courts, wasn't able to convince his own Justice Department uh, that he says was rigged, um, has essentially regained its leading position by standing still. Its ratings have fallen just 6% since the first weeks of the year. Now, by the way, um, after um, a hotly contested presidential campaign, uh, the peak of a pandemic, an economic collapse, uh, a year of, you know, racial justice rallies and riots, the riot at the Capitol on January 6th, um, you know, any news organization would be declining because you don't have these big dominant stories. I mean, it's not to say the pandemic has gone away. It's not to say that President Biden isn't doing important things. But anyway, so Fox has now lost the least compared to the other two. Uh, now, the piece also points out that Trump was very, very good uh, for the big national newspapers. Uh, the New York Times began his term with 3 million digital subscribers, ended with 7.5 million. The Washington Post tripled uh, the number of its subscribers to more than 3 million during the Trump administration. Um, and when Trump would attack uh, certain organizations, then their numbers would blip up uh, when he was in, you know, I mean, he was constantly talking about enemy of the American people. Vanity Fair picked up 13,000 new subscribers in 2016 after Trump tweeted an angry reaction to the magazine uh, <laughs> running a negative review of his New York steakhouse. The Atlantic brought in a wave of new subscribers after Trump gloated about layoffs at the magazine. This is just last May. Um, the Trump bump, says the Post, mostly skipped regional organizations, news organizations, and local newspapers, which continue to lose advertisers and audience. But on the national scene, and then we get to what it did, what Trump did for individual reporters, columnists, and commentators. Journalists won a dozen Pulitzer Prizes for Trump-related coverage between 2017 and 2020, including investigations of his taxes, his campaigns tied to Russia. How did that one turn out? His suspect char charities and alleged hush money payments to two women. Um, Andrew Tyndall, a British news uh, analyst who is a very smart guy, who writes a newsletter on network news, said the fast few years of constant news and massive audiences have misled media companies into thinking they could appeal to everyone. Uh, 
they could mix, mix deep, thoughtful reporting with tabloid-style headlines about Trump's latest news or controversy interruption. Now, says Tyndall, they got to decide what they're going to do. And I think also, you know, President Biden's deliberate dialing down of the temperature. Um, his, you know, he doesn't get on Twitter and attack a lot of people. He'll get on Twitter and he may attack ideologically in, in pushing for his priorities. But, you know, his first news conference of his presidency is going to be on Thursday. He doesn't seize the limelight. He doesn't want the limelight. He wants to recede. He wants to lower the temperature. And that might be good for the country, depending on your point of view, whether you like Joe Biden or you don't like Joe Biden. But it's not the kind of, he's not out there waging the culture wars. I mean, I guess you could say he is on immigration, but that's a real humanitarian crisis on the border. Um, it just doesn't lead to the same level of clicks and ratings and subscriptions and all of that. Uh, speaking of Biden's policies, let's move on here. You know, we just got through the nearly $2 trillion COVID relief and economic aid package, which is an enormous amount of money. And, you know, there's a lot, on the one hand, it's popular. Sure, it's popular. You're giving people money. $1,400 stimulus checks, money to schools, money in the form of uh, special unemployment aid, um, money to small businesses. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that are less directly related to COVID uh, that have drawn some criticism. But it's a very popular bill. But it's an enormous amount of money that is going to further explode the deficit and the debt. And I'm one of these people, whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican president, I care about that. I think you know, America is clearly living beyond its means, and we're saddling the next generation with enormous amounts of debt. Well, now, this isn't a scoop, but here's the New York Times take. President Biden's advisors are putting together a $3 trillion package to boost the economy, reduce carbon emissions, narrow economic inequality, beginning with a giant infrastructure plan. And I want to drill down on the details of this, but I've just got to stop and say, it. I mean, it takes your breath away. Where is all this money coming from? I mean, under Donald Trump, there was a big uh, COVID package that uh, got both Republican and Democratic support. Uh, then, there, then there was a year of, or nine months of inaction. Now the $2 trillion plan. Um, you know, at some point, we can't just keep printing the money. Uh, it's not to say that any one of these goals isn't worthy, but I think what happened is the Biden people are feeling pretty heady right now. They pushed this thing through with zero Republican votes, and they might be prepared to do it again. The aggressive approach the Biden administration wants to take, says the Times, as it tries to harness the power of the federal government to make the economy more equitable, address climate change, improve American manufacturing and high-tech industries, and an escalating battle with China. So Biden's advisors, and none of this is set in stone right now, planning to break this effort into pieces. So Congress would first tackle infrastructure. And you remember all of the times during the Trump administration were like, oh, next week is infrastructure week. And then there'd be some scandal and we wouldn't even talk about infrastructure. And he never did actually propose a detailed legislative plan on infrastructure, which I think even now, it's the one area, you know, rebuilding roads and bridges and tunnels and sewer systems, you know, that have, would have great appeal um, to both Republicans as well as Democrats, but it comes down to the question of how you pay for it. Anyway, the second uh, package of legislation, according to this piece, would be free community college, that'll make Bernie Sanders happy, universal pre-kindergarten, that would be nice, 
national paid leave program. I mean, all this stuff is nice, but it all costs a lot of money. Uh, that plan would spend heavily on energy deployment and uh, high-growth industries like 5G broadband. It would include money for rural broadband, advanced training for millions of workers, you know, and on and on and on and on. So let's just take infrastructure. Could this really get infrastructure, uh, Republican support? Well, it depends basically on how the bill is paid for. And by the way, it used to be an automatic thing in the House. There was a policy called PAYGO, which is you couldn't pass. It wasn't a law. It was just the House tried to stick to this. You couldn't pass a major bill without also designating what the sources of revenue would be. If you were going to raise taxes or you were going to tax business or you were going to have offsetting spending cuts. Nobody even bothers talking about that anymore. I mean, Republicans will bring it up because they're out of power right now. So what Biden is looking at, or at least his aides have discussed, is paying for the infrastructure spending by raising taxes on corporations. Well, big business won't like that, nor will many Republicans. Increasing the 21% corporate income tax rate, that was lowered, as I recall, uh, during the Trump years. Uh, Forcing multinational corporations to pay more in tax in the U.S. on income there and abroad. This has been an effort that's been going on for a long time and it never quite seems to materialize. And that's not going to get a lot of GOP support. So the overall price tag of the package could approach, could approach $4 trillion because it would include tax incentives like credits to help families afford child care and encourage energy, excuse me, encourage energy efficiency in existing buildings uh, and fighting poverty, like all great. But when you have tax credits and tax cuts, it means less revenue is coming into the Treasury. So usually Republicans like to cut taxes, Democrats like to spend big money. If you do both, you got to figure out some offset or, you know, basically we're heading down the road to being Venezuela. Um, So Republicans have already signaled, Mitch McConnell has made clear, he doesn't want to raise taxes. And if Biden wants to get some support, for a bipartisan, let's just say the first bill, the infrastructure measure, uh, he would have to drop the tax increases and find some other way to pay for it. Or they're also talking about going the reconciliation route, which is, again, party line vote. you got to tie it to the budget somehow. You can't do it on anything. But, you know, they're probably saying, eh, the hell with these Republicans. They didn't give us a single vote on the COVID bill. We'll just do it again. Uh, at that point, there would be no more pretense of any bipartisan cooperation in Washington on anything because Republicans will feel, understandably, totally cut out of the action. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, they will own any ill effects from this. And I just don't see how the system can swallow packages of this size after passing a $2 trillion bill. I'm just not seeing it. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. So I have a column today on foxnews.com, uh, which is about the fact that it looked at from one perspective, Joe Biden is off to a pretty successful uh, beginning to his presidency. He got this big bill passed. Uh, he's averaging 56% in the Gallup polls. He's ramped up the vaccine program. Um, he's done some good things. At the same time, I talk about the absolute humanitarian disaster on the border, which I say was completely caused by Biden policies, and they have to find a way to fix it. And so far, they don't seem to have a a way to fix it. And that could end up overshadowing, like once all the publicity from, I know they're going to be selling this for months, but once everybody cashes their stimulus checks, if the crisis on the border gets worse and not better, 
that could end up being a defining feature of the first year of the Biden presidency. Well, in today's New York Times conservative columnist, Ross Douthat, he, said, he kind of agrees with me saying the first two months of the Biden presidency have gone about as well as anyone in a new administration could reasonably hope. Meanwhile, he says the Republican Party can't agree what it stands for, let alone something offer something a majority of voters might support. But here are some things that could put Biden on the rocks. One, the border. Uh, so far, the new administration is failing that test, says Douthat. Uh, under pressure from a new wave of asylum seekers, the Biden White House is simultaneously reproducing the kind of detention conditions that were regularly denounced in the Trump era, true, and failing to slow the flow of migrants overall, a policy neither notably humane nor notably effective, true. He also points to China, and Ross Douthat says the Biden White House seems well aware of the dangers with China. If anything, the administration is taking a tougher rhetorical line than Trump did on some China-related issues, but he sees the possibility of an actual war over Taiwan, an invasion, and says Taiwan's not that well prepared. You know, the bargain has always been, going back to Nixon in 1972, the U.S. will maintain its relations with Taiwan, but not diplomatically, recognize China. And by the way, it doesn't matter how prepared Taiwan is or not, I mean, mainland China would completely and totally overrun this island if, the, if an invasion actually happened. It's diplomacy and, and the world stage and world trade that prevents that from happening. Because, you know, in Beijing's view, it's one China. That's not the way the U.S. looks at it. That's not the way the rest of the world looks at it. But that's certainly way, the way the communist rulers, President Xi and others, view it. So I hope that doesn't happen. And the final thing would be if Democrats... You know, the Democratic left is continuing to push all of these things, climate change, you know, and on and on and on. Where the new progressivism, says Ross, could be a big problem for the Dems is if it seems connected to some specific crisis that is clearly the Biden White House's responsibility in a way that makes weakness and wokeness a reasonable line of conservative attack. Well, there's your bumper sticker, weakness and wokeness, but it's got to be tied to something specific. Let's move on to covid um, you know, if you've been following this AstraZeneca vaccine, so AstraZeneca just did a trial and it is claiming, this is one that has not been approved by the U.S., but is in effect is being used in much of Europe. Uh, AstraZeneca said 79% effectiveness and it keeps people out of, uh, you know, we certainly could use another vaccine. But federal health officials, they put out a, a, a press release after midnight, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases saying, the data that was used by AstraZeneca in putting forth this, you know, ultimately it's a request for U.S. approval, may have provided an incomplete view of that information by using some outdated data. This is a British-Swedish, you know, conglomerate. Um, and the U.S. says it's concerned by the information the company has released. And the, um, AstraZeneca is being urged to work with this federal monitoring board to review the efficacy data, make sure most, the most accurate, up-to-date efficacy data is made public. This is a PR disaster for a company that has not been able to get its vaccine approved in the United States of America. Meanwhile, The Atlantic has a fascinating piece about vaccine acceptance and now says the fate of the pandemic depends on how many people will accept the vaccine because 
Biden is right, even though uh, Biden is worried now, the administration is worried that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine may fall behind schedule, not deliver as many uh, doses as the company had promised by May. Clearly by May, June, somewhere around there, we will have enough doses for everybody who wants it. But Americans' overall acceptance of the vaccine does seem to have increased in recent months. Some people who said in 2020 they'd wait and see have now waited, seen, and drifted into, yes, the Atlantic notes, and that's good news. But when you consider all the polls together, about 60% of Americans are planning to be immunized, if they haven't been already. But the remainder, a rough split of those who are refusing, the refuseniks, and the undecided, isn't shrinking at the rate we would have hoped. And there is a gaping partisan divide. I've talked about this in my writing, my podcast, and on the air. Talked to Frank Luntz about it, how, how conservatives are. Uh, NPR, uh, PBS poll found that 87%, 87% of registered Democrats have either received a vaccine or plan to get one, compared to 56% of registered Republicans. That is a gap of 25 to 30 points. And um, the virus will remain among us if defanged for many, and harmful outbreaks could emerge if we don't get the acceptance rate up. Now, Anthony Fauci says you need between 70 and 85% of the country taking the vaccine in order to get herd immunity. But we're not even at, we won't even be at 70, according to these polls. We certainly won't be at 80. So this is, a, this is a fascinating way of looking at it. An undecided segment of Americans, vaccine swing voters, who now make up roughly 20% of all adults, will have enormous power to determine how this goes. Which way will they break? So if you look at it as like a political campaign, these are the swing voters. Some may change their minds and decide to get it. What will that depend on? It will depend on um, a public persuasion campaign that is going to need more than just politicians. Uh, it's going to a lot of it's going to be in the communities, you know, mouth to mouth, getting the word out. Uh, because although you might be able to get the vaccine and your family might eventually be able to get the vaccine, if these people break. Uh, against getting the vaccine, then the vaccine won't be wiped out in America and there could be new variants and all of that. So it really is kind of crucial. Um, meanwhile, just going back to the border for a moment, uh, Joe Scarborough went off on Morning Joe and you have uh, Democrats, um, including uh, Chris Murphy from Connecticut, talking about the humanitarian crisis with tears in their eyes. So uh, Scarborough says, as long as you have, and remember, Scarborough absolutely detests Donald Trump, basically supported Joe Biden, but this is the first major issue I think he's been critical on. As long as you have a permissive immigration policy, you're going to have a crisis at the border, says Morning Joe. And uh, there is a crisis at the border. He says the Biden administration has a permissive policy where it is dangerous for the children because more children are going to keep coming until you tell them, no, we're not going to let them in. Now, Mika Brzezinski, his wife, uh, added, you do understand they are saying that now. They're sending ads. And Joe says, no, they're saying don't come, but they're still not saying we're not going to let unaccompanied minors in. And I agree with Joe on this. You can say all you want. Don't come, don't come, don't come. You can run ads on TV. When some of these uh, migrant families and unaccompanied minors are interviewed, they say, well, we're watching on TV and people are getting in, particularly the younger people, so we thought we would try it. You know, they're fleeing immense poverty or persecution, whatever. They somehow get across the Rio Grande and they're seeing success. 
saying don't come won't do it. You know, am I thrilled about the idea of having to turn unaccompanied minors away? No, I don't like that at all. But until you get the message that they have to apply for asylum from their home countries or from Mexico, this is just going to get worse. That's just the real political fact of life there. And finally, a situation in Boston. Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has now been confirmed as Biden's labor secretary. So for the first time, a woman and an African-American is mayor of Boston, at least acting mayor of Boston, Kim Janey. She takes off. I guess there will be an election at the end of the year. What does it say about the history of Boston that there's never been anybody but white guys elected as mayor? Never been an African-American person, never been a woman. I mean, New York had its first African-American with David Dinkins back in 1989. Uh, D.C. has a lot of African-American mayors. Um, um, California had a governor, a uh, black governor, back in the 80s. Um, you go by city after city after city. Harold Washington, late 80s in Chicago, but not Boston until now. Kim Janey uh, was the president of the city council. She'd worked for the Boston, with the Boston NAACP, among others. And we'll see how she does. And I remember I talked about D.C. statehood. There was a House hearing yesterday. And Republican senator from South Dakota, Mike Rounds, uh, tweeted, the founding father is never intended for Washington, D.C. to be a state. And that's literally true. But he got beaten up on Twitter, as did uh, Georgia uh, Congressman Jody Heiss, for saying, uh, well, it would be the only, District of Columbia would be the only state without an auto dealership. For one thing, there are auto dealerships in D.C. Secondly, um, the Constitution doesn't say anything about auto dealerships because there were no auto dealerships in the 1770s. Just wanted to point that out. So rounds got kind of slapped down by people saying, well, you know, uh, the Founding Fathers, here's one tweet from Jamel Hill. She's the former ESPN uh, host who now works for the Atlantic, African-American commentator. Um, she says, um, the Founders also never intended for black people to be counted as citizens or human beings, for women to vote, and for anyone who wasn't a white man to own property. Molly John Fast, the Founding Fathers never intended for two Dakotas or even one, because at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, there, the, the Dakotas weren't even a thing. They later became one, the Dakota Territory. And then Dakota Territory was split into, obviously, North and South Dakota and in an effort to give Republicans two more Senate seats. This is in the 1880s, I believe. So it has happened. Again, D.C. statehood is not going to pass unless it is somehow uh, paired with some other admission because the Republicans are going to fight tooth and nail giving D.C. two giving, excuse me, giving the Democrats two more Democratic senators who, who inevitably would be the case from the District of Columbia. But it's not like this has ever happened before. And when you invoke the founding fathers, it's true. A lot has changed with them. Well, folks, thank you for listening to the Buzz Meter. Hope you have a great day. I'll just briefly remind you, you can get this thing on your Amazon device. You just ask for it. Or on Amazon Music or Spotify or Apple iTunes or Google Podcasts or just about anywhere. And we'll talk to you tomorrow with more Buzz Meter. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.